The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture. And welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. My guest today is perfect in helping us think beyond our plate from a legal standpoint. She is Amanda Heyman. She is a partner in the Fair Grange Law Firm based in Minneapolis, Minnesota. She provides legal counsel for independent farmers and food businesses. And Fair Grange Law was named as Top Legal Food Crusader in 2013. Prior to founding Fairgrange Law, Amanda served as a staff attorney at the national nonprofit law firm Farmers Legal Action Group, or FLAG, and clerked in the U.S. District Court for the District of Minnesota. Prior to going to law school, she was a journalist, and she's won awards for her news reporting in New Mexico and Wisconsin, and she actually lives in Minneapolis, but she spent a lot of time nationally looking at these issues. For example, she has particular expertise with the National Organic Program, USDA Administrative Appeals, pesticide drift issues, GMO labeling issues, agriculture and food business contracts, and trademark law. So welcome, Amanda. I'm so happy to have you. Thanks, Melinda. It's absolutely my pleasure to be here. Well, tell me a little bit about how you decided to go into this branch of law. Sure. I was always interested in, in finding work at the intersection of environment, social justice, and health. And after my clerkship was over and I was looking for jobs in Minneapolis, I came upon FLAG, which you mentioned in your intro. And they are a wonderful national nonprofit organization that works um, on behalf of family farmers nationwide. And my first assignment at FLAG was to write a book on organic contracts. And it was a great assignment. It was a two-year grant, and I got to just dig right into all of the National Organic Program regulations and history and review dozens of contracts and talk to farmers and, in the end, produced this really long book of, entitled The Farmer's Guide to Organic Contracts. So that's kind of how I got into the agricultural law sector. And as I was at FLAG, I ended up, you know, as I was talking to farmers and getting into the sustainable food movement, um, realized that there was this unmet need there for what we call good food businesses. And as I was realizing this, I also met my law firm partner, Jen Jamber Delgado, who was a staff attorney at FLAG as well, and she is a wonderful, talented, fabulous attorney and a great person <laughs> as well, uh, and we ended up working together and, and writing two books on agricultural employment for both employees and for interns, and we realized that we had a complementary set of strengths and weaknesses and loved working together, and we both had seen this need for legal services among good food businesses that perhaps you're a, have a local food cheese product. And you need representation, but nobody really knows the law in that area. And uh, people would often call FLAG for help in those kinds of areas. And there was nobody that we could refer to. And we knew that we could help, but we could only do work within the grants that we had at FLAG. And so uh, we ended up deciding to be 
the people that could be referred to. So that's how we ended up in this area of law, and that's how we ended up founding our law firm. Well, I should let our listeners know that you are the only law firm of your kind in the state of Minnesota and one of only a handful in the nation who's looking at these assorted issues. So I think that you absolutely hit on a critical niche market and one that is only going to expand, I think. So we should also let our listeners know how I came to find you. And it was because I was writing an article on pesticide drift and hearing from farmers that lived around my own home in Missouri about how they had suffered drift and not been satisfied with the outcome. And I thought, well, if I'm going to write about drift, I need to talk about what are the legal courses of action for a farmer who's experienced it. Are they being compensated fairly? And even if the farmer is compensated fairly for his loss, I look at things from a public health perspective and think, well, what about my loss, right? I'm a member of the community. I'm losing access to clean food and clean water. And what about my right to feed my family good food? So anyway, that's how we met. Tell Mm -hmm. me, how many cases of pesticide drift do you personally work on or have you been working on for the course of your career in this firm? Well, the actual cases worked on are so much fewer in number than the cases that I hear about and talk to people about, Mm -hmm. because as you and I had discussed previously, it's really difficult to really go forward with a legal case on a pesticide drift claim. It takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of emotional energy on behalf of the farmer. And so I think at the moment, we're working on two or three, but... I'd put the number of people who talk to me about potentially pursuing a case at a much higher, around you know, 20 or 30 people. Mm-hmm. If a farmer is sprayed upon, generally mm-hmm. the first thing that they do is they contact their State Department of Agriculture and hopefully somebody comes out to visit the farm to file a report as soon as possible. And in our conversation, you had spoken about the need to act quickly. So tell me a little bit about the legal advice you would give a farmer if they notice that they have had a drift incident. Sure. Well, part of the reason why our advice is to act quickly just in general is that we've spoken to so many farmers who've told us about drift incidents that happened two years ago, three years ago, four years ago, and it's still really fresh in their memory and it really took a lot out of them to go through that experience. But there are a lot of legal reasons that it's important to act quickly, which in Minnesota especially is that there's a statute of limitations of two years between the time that you were sprayed and the time that you have to have filed a lawsuit in order to even be able to get anywhere in court. So two years is kind of a long time, but you know it takes, it takes a while to get through this and to maybe decide that you want to sue. So that's just one thing to keep in mind, and that's just in Minnesota, but many states have statute of limitations like that. So the other piece of it is that over the course of time, memory fades, and even more importantly, chemicals fade. And so contacting your state department of agriculture or whatever department is assigned to investigate pesticide drift is critical to do right away because the chemicals are are going to get washed away by rain, they're going to naturally evaporate, and getting those samples taken by the inspector who comes out, hopefully who comes out as soon as possible, 
is really critical evidence. And it's, as I said before, it's a really difficult type of case to go forward with because the evidence that you need is, is quite wide ranging. But one thing that is really helpful is that many states Department of Agriculture do do the type of testing that will give you hard evidence showing that there is chemical residue on your crops or there was chemical residue on your crops and that is expensive and oftentimes would never happen without the State Department of Agriculture coming out in time to to catch that evidence. And then who does the farmer get compensation from? Well, theoretically, it could be from multiple avenues, but the cases that we've done have mostly been against the pesticide applicator, which oftentimes is a separate company that the landowner has hired to spray the fields. And that's often just more comfortable from a relational perspective because nobody likes suing their neighbors. Um, right. So it's better to try, in many cases, to go against the pesticide application company. And in order to do that, you really need to build a strong evidentiary foundation and you need to do it fast when your memory is there and the evidence is fresh. And so, you know, the kind of things that we recommend are building a paper trail, writing letters to the Department of Agriculture, to your organic certifier, to the company, and making sure that you have this foundation where you can you can write down and do interviews with our, I mean, that's what we do with our clients. We, we do interviews and get all the facts together so that it's fresh. And you use that foundation to first write a settlement demand letter to the applicator. And our theory is that if you really come out guns blazing right away and show you've got everything together and you can go to court and you can win, you're much more likely to get a favorable result from the applicator. And I should note that it's usually the applicator's insurance company that you're going to be dealing with, not the applicator itself. So you really have to show the insurance company that you're serious because they deal with this kind of thing all the time. And then, you know, if, if you're successful in that way, then you can avoid actually having to go to court, at least in theory, or you could go to court and just start the proceeding and hopefully settle sooner rather than later in the process. So are all applicators required to have insurance? In Minnesota, I can answer that. All applicators are required to have insurance. Right now, the required limit is $50,000, and I can tell you that that will almost (laughs) never cover the real amount of damage that a farmer will actually suffer. So it's, it's our opinion that that number should be increased dramatically. Oh, yeah, absolutely. There was just a case reported, you probably saw it, in Iowa where a certified organic farmer lost certification of of their asparagus patch. And I believe Mm -hmm. the value for that alone was, I want to say, $70,000. And so I wonder if somebody loses a lot more whether a larger amount of their farm has been affected or if they have a crop that has a higher dollar value, it doesn't sound like they're going to ever be fully compensated, or do you know of cases where they have been? Well, I can tell you that if you go to court in the first place, you're never going to be fully compensated <laughs> because you're going to have to pay your lawyers and you're going to have to you know, incur costs in prosecuting the case. So. You're never going to get back to where you started. But 
as far as, as recovering against the insurance and then anything above the, the limit, we, we have encountered applicators who have higher levels of insurance just because the insurance company is, is usually the entity that will set the required level. So it could be high enough, but you, you, know, you don't really know that. And what happens is it's, it's so much easier to get money from an insurance company, even though <laughs> that in itself is not an easy feat, but it's much easier to do that than to go to court go all the way through to a trial and get a judgment against somebody's company. And when you get a judgment against somebody's company that's higher than, than their insurance policy limit, you have to try to figure out how to get that money from them. And oftentimes that might mean getting a lien on property or garnishing wages, and it's just a, a difficult process. Whereas usually the insurance company, if they've settled or there's been a judgment that they're not appealing, they can just write you a check. So it, it is actually important that the level of insurance is high enough to actually remedy at least part of a farmer's damages. Mm-hmm. Listeners, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Food Sleuth Radio, and we are speaking with Amanda Heyman. She is a partner in the Fair Grange Law Firm based in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and she is one of only a handful of law firms that it provides legal counsel for farmers and food businesses. Fairgrange Law has uniquely been named as Top Legal Food Crusader. And so we're very happy to be talking to Amanda today about some of the legal issues that farmers face. Now, Amanda, I have to say that I'm concerned about USDA's recent approval of the 2,4-D-resistant genetically engineered crops. And we should let our listeners know that these crops were approved primarily because the weeds became resistant to Roundup, Monsanto's Roundup herbicide. And so the new mixture that's come out, Dow is the first to bring a product to market, is called Enlist Duo. It includes both glyphosate, or the active ingredient in Roundup, as well as 2,4-D, which was one of the two main ingredients in Agent Orange. So you may hear these crops called Agent Orange crops. This is what we're talking about now, another level of herbicide application. We know that 2,4-D is known for its volatility. Farmers are concerned. Dow says, don't worry, we've made it so that it's not as volatile as your grandfather's 2,4-D. But nonetheless, do you anticipate seeing more cases of drift with this new herbicide mixture? Yes, I, I absolutely do anticipate that. I think even if it's not as volatile, it still will most likely be much more uh, volatile than glyphosate, which I believe was introduced in part because it was going to be so much better than 2,4-D, which right. was in use back then. And so I think it will cause a lot of trouble, especially for specialty crops and for organic farmers. And part of the the trouble with that type of chemical is it makes it so much harder to tie the drift incident to a specific applicator because, you know, it's it's easier if you see somebody spraying the neighboring field and you know that it's hit your field or you can, you know, work backward that way. But this type of chemical, at least in previous formulations, can drift for quite a ways. And it can also, I believe, be maintained for for more than one or two days at least. So that's just going to make it really difficult for farmers who get hit with it to know who you could even sue. And even if you think you've figured it out to your satisfaction, whether or not you can prove it, 
in court is is another story. So I think it's just going to add another level of complexity to the problem. Although, you know, the I guess if there is to be a silver lining, it could be that the more drift incidents that occur and the more that happen to farmers who perhaps aren't within the specialty crop or organic community, the more pushback there may be and the more realization there may be that there need to be better laws and more enforcement regarding pesticide drift. It has to be taken more seriously at the agency level and at the state law level. So I do think that it is going to cause more drift, but you never know what the the end result might be. So in addition to the threats from 2,4-D and increased use of more herbicides that will be used to hit these resistant weeds, and your role in looking at drift incidences, I'm interested to know about some of the other issues that you have expertise with. And I noticed that on your website, and I want to just refer our listeners to your website, which is fairgrange.com, and that's F-A-R-E, grange.com, and we'll provide that link to our listeners as well, that you also participated in a GMO labeling strategy session. And this has been an issue that has been nationally important. Different states have tried to pass GMO labeling laws. We know we have Gary Hirschberg working in Washington to try to have a national labeling law rather than these piecemeal state pieces of legislation that probably aren't a good idea. Do you think, as an attorney, are we ever going to see national GMO labeling? I think it's very possible. However, my concern with a national law would be that it might be toothless. It might not be up to the standard of the existing types of state legislation that's either in existence or been proposed. So that would that would be my concern. In fact, there's been talk at the federal level of a law that would actually require food that does not contain GMOs to be labeled. So sort of a reverse labeling requirement uh, instead of requiring the food that does contain GMOs to be labeled. So the concern would be that, number one, it would be much too lax, and that, number two, there would be a provision in it that would require federal preemption, which would mean that it would override any existing state laws that were potentially stronger than the, than the national law. So it's a real double-edged sword. It could be a great thing if there is a national law and it would provide certainty across state lines, and that would be that would be great as long as it really contains what GMO labeling advocates want it to contain, which is basically to make sure the consumer has the right to know. Yeah, and I can only assume that from the food industry standpoint, having different states with different pieces of legislation, that it would be very difficult for them to comply. And I'm assuming that that's one of the big reasons why they don't want any kind of labeling. Yes, I think that that's at least their argument. I've looked at the actual text of the legislation in the states where it's either been enacted with a trigger provision or, like, for example, in Vermont, it's actually been put into law. And the laws are actually remarkably similar. All of them require the same language to be placed on the food product, which is produced with genetic engineering. Mm-hmm. So it really isn't that difficult for a food company to comply from state to state. And I think it is an argument that, that makes intuitive sense, so it does have some power. 
But I think it's important to remember that states are really the laboratories for trying new laws and, and trying to figure out what will work and what won't work. And that's actually how the National Organic Program came into being. There was a hodgepodge of different state laws around organic food labeling, and that developed into a national organic program. So I do think that that the state laws have have some value, at, at least at this stage in the game. Mm-hmm. Do you think the financial influence in Washington plays a role in what we see in our supermarkets? Absolutely. <laughs> yes, I think I think that is absolutely the case. I mean, the food lobby just has so much more manpower and so many more dollars. And as you've seen from the labeling propositions in California and other states, once the money is poured into the marketing campaign for the anti-labeling coalitions, the voting population, the, the tide definitely turns. So yeah. I think... The, the money is, is hugely important, absolutely. Yeah, it's sort of an umbrella issue that affects so much of our lives, and I'm not sure people really realize just how powerful that marketing is. I remember following the labeling issue in California where the polls showed that many consumers, the majority of them, wanted the labeling. And we're talking about like mm-hmm. 80 90% of consumers, at least nationally, yep. say they want labels. And then the messages that were so effective, I think there was one that said it's going to raise the price of food. And if you talk to mm-hmm. Gary Hirschberg, he says, well, no, actually, food manufacturers change their labels all the time. It doesn't cost that much. So I don't know the best way to communicate with consumers in terms of, no, the labeling is a good idea if you want to know what you're eating. I think that's the best message. It's just If you want to know what's in your food, there needs to be a label, and, and part of the problem is that we're dealing with the types of products that consumers can't independently verify what's in your food. You have to rely on the label. There, there's nothing else to do unless you're you know, going to a farmer's market and talking to a food entrepreneur who actually handcrafted the product in a commercial kitchen earlier that day or a farmer who's just harvested the crops and brought them there. I mean, the marketing is critical, and I think that the FDA is really letting us down uh, as far as participating in what types of marketing is is allowed and not allowed in our food. I mean, they recently just declined to help clarify what the meaning of the word natural is. Right. So I think if we can't even get that type of instruction from the FDA, I mean, what what are you supposed to do? So I can see why people are, are sort of up in arms about this and it's it's a really basic need to want to know what you're eating and uh, and what your kids are eating. So mm-hmm. I, I can see why it's gaining momentum. Yeah, and you've looked at the different state laws. So I can tell you that the one piece of the labeling law that concerns me is that so if you have a food product that contains, say, genetically engineered corn or soy, and I tell people that if you want to avoid genetically engineered ingredients, first and foremost look for the organic label. And then after that, if it's not organic, if it contains corn, soy, canola, cottonseed oil, and sugar beets, you can assume that that's going to be a genetically engineered ingredient. But from what I've seen from the state laws, and correct me if I'm wrong, if an animal has been fed GMO grain, and many of them are, that would not be required on the label. Yes, that is the case in the Minnesota law, and that is the case in many of the other state laws. And I can tell you that it's because of at least two reasons. 
The first reason is the federal preemption issue that I mentioned earlier. There's an entire federal law that regulates how meat is prepared and labeled. And so because that federal law exists, the concern is that it already regulates the entire field. And so if a state was to go in and try to say how meat was to be labeled, there would immediately be a lawsuit and the state law would be thrown out on federal preemption grounds because of the supremacy clause in the Constitution that says federal law, just as a general matter, trumps state law. So that's one reason. And the second reason, I think, is in addition to that, it does represent, and all legislation, of course, eventually represents some sort of political compromise. And I think that these state laws are the first foray into this type of labeling. And so it's it's easier to convince people that the labeling law should come into existence if it doesn't regulate the whole field right away. I see. You know, from a dietitian's perspective, when I'm talking to consumers about this, it's one of the reasons why I tell them to always look for organic meat and dairy products because you know then Mm -hmm. that the animal has not been fed genetically modified feed. However, I see so much abuse, as you mentioned, of the natural label. There's natural meat everywhere. And as an attorney, do you advise clients who are making a new food product to avoid the label natural? Well, it depends on what they're doing. And I should just mention that the word natural, actually the only context in which it does have some legal meaning is in the meat arena. Mm -hmm. It does have a little bit of meaning there. But I would advise, if I had clients who made different type of foods, I would advise them to avoid the word natural. But most of my clients are actually producing food that I think would be worthy of the term natural. So Mm -hmm. I think I probably wouldn't advise most of my clients (laughs) to go that route. Well, the reason why I bring that up is, um, and you're right, the USDA's definition of natural is far superior. It it actually has a little bit more meaning than FDA's. But it's my understanding Mm -hmm. that it's a post-production term or it's a post-slaughter term. So it doesn't have anything to do with what the animal ate or how it was raised. Am I interpreting? That's my understanding as well, yes. Okay. So, again, if people are looking for meat and dairy products that have not been fed, genetically engineered grain, the natural label is not going to give you that guarantee. No, it's, it's not. And, and there's, just, there's a lot of confusion, I think, about what the word organic means. Yeah. And I, I serve on the Minnesota Organic Advisory Task Force, and we met recently and had quite a long conversation about how there needs to be more education around the fact that organic does mean GMO-free. And mm-hmm that the, really the best thing that you can do and the easiest thing that a consumer can do is to look for the organic label. And I certainly work with people who have issues with the organic label and as far as bureaucracy goes and as far as, as they, they don't think that the label actually goes far enough. And there certainly are you know, concerns that there's, there's been attempts from what people sometimes term big organic to water down the label. But as a consumer, I think that's the, the easiest and best way to go unless you actually know the farmer that you're working with or are familiar with how the food product that you're going to buy is, how, you know, how that's been produced. Well, Amanda, our time is up. I want to thank you so much for being my guest. We have been speaking with Amanda Heyman. She is a partner in Fairgrange, Lawyers for Good Food, and she regularly represents farmers, food entrepreneurs, and public interest advocates in the good food universe. Fairgrange Law was named as top legal food crusader in 2013, and I want to direct everyone to the website, which again is 
fairgrange.com just to find out all of the different issues that this particular law firm covers. I want to thank our listeners for joining us and remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. And again, Amanda, I want to thank you so much for being here and helping to sort out some of these legal issues. Thanks for having me, Melinda. Melinda.